Hello, and welcome to the September podcast from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller, and each month I'll be bringing you interviews with Faber authors to keep you up to date with their latest work. Later in this program, I'll be speaking to Mark Thompson about the harshness of the little-known Italian front in World War I. When you think of Flanders and the Western Front, you think about mud. And when you think about the Italian Front, you need to think of stone, having to excavate and blast trenches out of solid limestone. My first guest today is Australian novelist James Bradley. James came into the Faber offices recently to talk to me about his latest novel, The Resurrectionist, a gothic chiller set amid the world of the anatomists and black market trade of the body snatchers in early 19th century London. The Guardian praised the book for capturing the gore of the mortuary slab and the seedy high of the opium den. I asked James what had got him started on such a grisly subject. The book really began in two things. One was the story of Burke and Hare, who smothered 16 people and sold their bodies to Robert Knox in Edinburgh in the late 1820s. And I remember reading that story and being struck by the dreadfulness of it. I mean, it seemed to me to be both a story very much of its time, of that kind of 19th century industrial city, the the claustrophobia of that city, the, the poverty of that city, and the brutality of that, that world. But also a weirdly contemporary story, you know, a story about murder for profit, about kind of turning people into things to be bought and sold, killed, disposed of. It seemed to be a very kind of 20th century story at another level. I also, I mean, books often begin in this way where you find that there's, you have a beginning and you have an end and the book's about finding your way from one to the other. And I, I had this very powerful dream one night. In the dream, there was a man standing behind, beside a road in the Australian bush. And it was in that bleached light you get in the Australian bush in the winter. I knew as I was looking at this man that he was dead, that he was a ghost or a revenant of some kind. And I also knew that somehow that man there in the Australian bush connected somehow to this story of murder for profit that I wanted to write about. I guess in many ways the book is about trying to find a way between those two moments. I and mean, oddly enough, the scene with the man didn't end up in the book, but it was in a sense the inspiration for it. And books are always about both that kind of the conscious stuff you put into them, the stuff you think they're about, and the kind of subconscious landscape that's at work in them. And I guess The Man by the Road was always the subconscious landscape of the book. One, one word that I wrote down as I was reading the book was, was economy. And it seemed to me that the economics of early 19th century Britain were very much to the fore in that everything can be bought and sold it can be a body it can be a live body it can be a dead body there's a sort of competition amongst the the resurrectionists it's got its own economic sort of supply and demand weirdly enough that was one of the things i was very interested in right from the start with the book with every book you really want to write about now you don't want to write about then and i i was very interested by this world because in a world it was a world where everything was for sale where everyone was for sale. And it seemed to me to be an amazing kind of metaphor for early 21st century, you know, liberal democracies, you know. It was an incredibly powerful kind of image in a way, a way of talking about now, about what happens when you stick medicine and commerce next to each other, when you, you do those things that continue to happen now. 
I mean, I hope the book doesn't have many mistakes in it, but it, it doesn't try to be a historical novel in the conventional sense. You know, and it's quite a modern world that it's writing about, and the characters behave a lot of the time much more like modern characters than necessarily like people of the times. But I was very interested by when I was doing the research. I mean, you can learn about the lives of the poor, and you can learn about the lives of the middle classes and the rich. But the people that it's very hard to get a sense of the lives of are the people who are kind of in between those people both who are sort of respectable but not quite respectable and, uh, and live in that world where you can slip so easily from one world down you know and I was interested by them but also by the lives of the kind of actresses and writers and I mean the, I guess the kind of demimonde of mm. of that world I was very interested by the precariousness of it and uh, you know all of those people who are in the way that Gabriel the narrator is kind of not quite gentleman you know, I mean, what would it be to be one of those people? Mm. And even Paul, the um, the anatomist, is a self-made man, isn't he? He's got very humble beginnings and is is on the up. And other people, as you say, sort of sometimes slide slide back down, and the, the wheel of fortune turns mm. against them. And it's actually particularly interesting in terms of the the material of the book because, I mean, you had this kind of revolution that happened in medicine in the late eighteenth century, beginning of the nineteenth, where the role of the surgeon expanded, the, the job of surgery became, you know, the research that was around it began to grow and the numbers of people who became surgeons grew exponentially along with the population. But there'd always traditionally been a distinction between physicians and surgeons and physicians were gentlemen, they went to university. Surgeons were tradesmen. And their social status had risen by this stage. They were no longer barbers as well. But it was still a profession that was apprenticed and that young men, boys, went into you know, the sons of poor parsons, you know, merchants' kids, the sons of rich tradesmen, because it was a way to kind of achieve social success. And I have to say, as an Australian, you're very aware of it, because, I mean, there's a number of people, William Redfern, who was one of the kind of really significant figures in the early colony in New South Wales, you know, was a surgeon. I mean, and, and they were all people often from quite humble origins who could rise and become figures within societies it, w it was a route to social advancement it's also interesting i think because there is something about i mean the thing that the surgeons did that was really radical and and that began in the late 18th century was a process of looking at the body and this was quite a radical idea i mean they looked at the body and they said what is happening you know when someone is sick what does it look like what is happening inside what are the physical processes that are going on and yet it was a physical profession you know so I mean you have all of that funny stuff about it's a trade you work with wood you work with bodies and I do suspect that there is something about the process of surgeons beginning to see the body to look at the body to get it within that medical gaze where you depersonalize it it and make it into an object of scientific study which was both about the fact that doing surgery was a dreadful process I mean I mean Astley Cooper used to talk about his surgeons as victims I mean it was dreadful it was done without surgery I mean the notion of cutting somebody's limbs off without surgery without anesthetic it's a horrible notion it must have been incredibly distressing to do as well as to have done you know so you have that kind of connection both with the brutalizing process of it but also with that kind of trade aspect of it. I mean, you're actually working with a body. It's a thing. I mean, it's like a lump of wood. You learn how it works. The book is incredibly corporeal, visceral, the sense of the body as a, as a thing that can be 
opened and examined. Tell me how you steeled yourself and prepared yourself for writing some of those gut-drenching scenes. I remember when I sat down to start writing it, I mean the first page is a dissection scene and I remember looking at it and thinking to myself, well what happens now and what does a dissection look like? And I didn't know so I kind of did what I normally do which is ring up somebody I know who's a doctor and say, so dissections, how do you do them? And he said, you've got to go and look at them. And so I I, I went and did dissection classes for a little while at one of the universities which was a fascinating process and I mean, it's fascinating both for watching the bodies and for watching the way people behave around them. But I became really clear very quickly that the bodies they were working with were nothing like the ones my characters would have been working with. I mean, they were drained of blood, set in formaldehyde. I mean, they're these strange kind of bloodless grey. I mean, they look exactly like cold roast pork. It is really quite disconcerting. But they didn't look like the bodies my characters would have been working with, which were straight out of the ground they were full of blood they were full of all of the mess that's inside bodies and they were often on the turn as well and so i talked to a doctor friend who introduced me to someone who ran the pathology department at one of the big hospitals in sydney and for a few weeks i went and watched autopsies in the hospital which were a much more visceral and confronting experience they're not nauseating and they're not revolting but they are they are very strange I mean there's something very odd about dead bodies I mean there is a process with the body and when someone dies there's still him or her and there's a point somewhere along the line where they stop being a him or her and they become an it I mean people move from subject to object and you know you know the point where a body's become an it but when you're doing autopsies, the bodies are in this strange stage where they're kind of in between. They're things, but they're still hims and hers. And so it's quite disconcerting for that as well. You mentioned this image you had at the start of the, of the figure in the, in the bleached light of Australia. And the book shifts from the very dark, oppressive London of the first section to this second part and it seemed to me other transitions take place, like the transition from the, the sort of insistent corporeality to something that's opening onto a different vista, really. The, G- Gabriel goes from being a resurrectionist to being an artist. He paints birds, which are the most, I suppose, incorporeal of the, of the corporeal creatures. And I wondered if you could say something about that transition that takes place and how you, how you sort of operated that pivot that the book sort of really turns on because some some of what some of what has occurred is left behind but inevitably some some of it goes with him it trails after him i think in a very real sense the book actually happens from the middle and i call it the middle but in fact the australian section is more like a coda it's only about a quarter of the length and so in a sense i think it radiates out from in a sense the break between the two sections i mean i always knew right from the moment i began the book that it would end up in Australia. I, I wonder actually whether, for a lot of English audiences, the Australian sections probably seem a bit odd and tacked on. But I don't think that they are. I mean, I think they're absolutely intrinsic to the book and they're part of the book. And they're about taking a character out of, I mean, as you say, an intensely and insistently corporeal world and putting them into the, the openness and, in a, I guess, at some level, freedom 
of Australia because there was something very odd that went on with transportation. Robert Hughes has a great line about Australia being a prison without walls and it was, it was a prison and people got sent there to prison yet for a huge number of the people who went there it was also a kind of release and once you got there people became very rich a lot of them, I mean you see that in Dickens with both Magwitch and Micawber end up in Australia and make their, I mean even Micawber makes his fortune in Australia and people did become very rich I mean but it was also a way of kind of people left behind their class origins I mean a whole series of things could kind of happen in that process of going to Australia but they also had to take with them their pasts and I do think that Australia like a lot of colonial societies still suffers I mean I'm always a bit suspicious of psychosocial explanations but I do think that colonial societies tend to suffer from the fact of the amnesia that they have to exist with you know I mean colonial societies are always founded upon the dispossession of the people who lived there before them and you need in a sense not to talk about that in order to maintain the idea of this as a society and in Australia that's actually doubled you have this problem of the dispossession of the people who lived there and laid over it you have the fact that the people who came there needed to kind of forget their origins you know they needed to forget that they were convicts so the whole country is kind of built around a kind of forgetting forgetting is at one level necessary but then also needs to be gotten past because I mean the, the process of that forgetting I think is very damaging to societies over time if you deny the origins of the society eventually you start to deny a whole series of things that shouldn't be denied and so I wanted to write about that process but I also wanted to kind of get at the notion that the I mean this kind of medical gaze, this process of looking at bodies and turning them into objects that can be first of all dissected but also bought and sold is absolutely the same process that was in place during colonisation. The classification of the landscape, the classification of the fauna, the classification of the flora, the mapping of the landscape, the tying down of it. And I wanted to kind of get at the way that those two things are connected, the way that this kind of medical gaze, this scientific gaze at the body and this scientific gaze which allowed, in a sense, places like Australia to be brought in and brought under control were, were part and parcel of the same thing. That was James Bradley, whose novel The Resurrectionist is available in paperback now. Mark Thompson's book, The White War, is, in the words of The Guardian, a magnificent history of a struggle conducted amid snow, cloud and crag. That of the Italian front in the First World War. Though much less familiar to us than the Western or Eastern fronts, the fighting on the Italian front was every bit as bloody and brutal. Over a million men died in a war of attrition, fought on a terrain even more hostile than the trenches of Flanders. I asked Mark to tell me about that terrain. When you think of Flanders and the Western front, you think about mud. And when you think about the Italian front, you need to think of stone and having to build having to excavate and blast trenches out of solid limestone. You've got a very vivid image in the book for that landscape. You say that the Carso was like a vast petrified sponge that could cut you to the bone. And I thought that that really got across the hostility of this terrain, which is just as hostile in its way as the the Western Front. Yes, that's quite right. This was a uh, terrain which the soldiers came to hate and to see as, as an enemy 
it, it's still true today, as I know from my own walking on the castle, that if you slip and fall, you cut yourself on the stone. When shells impacted on this limestone, the limestone of the castle, then the fragments of limestone could be quite as deadly as the pieces of shell casing which would burst and shower around. So this was a very difficult environment in which to fight. It was also, of course, waterless. There was no surface water and water supplies had to be brought in to the soldiers at, at the front lines. Often those water supplies were lacking and during the summers, which were baking hot and rainless, the, the soldiers suffered greatly from thirst. And yet there was also mud on the castle, a sort of clayey red mud, and soldiers' memoirs and diaries pay a lot of attention to this hateful mud on which the soldiers would slip and slide around during rainstorms. So there was an element of Flanders in that, but the main element was uh, stone. Before the war, Italy had an alliance with Austro-Hungary and Germany, and yet by 1915 they were fighting each other in this terrible war of attrition. Can you say how that came about, how ally turned to foe? Yes. Well, it was one of the strange features of European politics before the First World War that Italy had a long-standing and yet semi-clandestine alliance with, as you say, Germany and Austria-Hungary. This dated back to the 1880s. And the reason why Italy had made an alliance then with its main international enemy, Austria-Hungary, was that it wanted above all to have the military tie to, to Germany. The Italians venerated the Prussian military and they were willing to swallow an alliance with their old enemy, Austria, for the sake of a defensive connection with the Germans. This was never a popular treaty and when the Austrians and Germans decided to punish Serbia in summer 1914, the Italian government wisely declared neutrality. And they said that because Austria's designs on Serbia were aggressive, the terms of its alliance, of Italy's alliance with Austria and Germany, were void. And therefore there was no treaty obligation for the Italians to support Austria and Germany. That's not surprising. More surprising was the fact that the Austrians had not apparently calculated on the Italians not supporting them, or at least not, not passively supporting them. The Austrians therefore ended up fighting a war on three fronts for which they had neither the resources nor any strategic plans whatever. They found themselves fighting by spring 1915, the Russians, the uh, Serbians, and, and then the Italians. So they were stretched very, very thinly indeed, which is why their defensive feats on the Italian front were so remarkable. In common with many nations, there was a feeling of ebullience when, when war was declared in Italy, and there was talk of being in Vienna by Christmas, so within a matter of a few months. And very quickly, it became evident that that was not going to come to pass, that the same kind of attrition that was found in the Western Front was also beginning to take place uh, in the mountains. That's right. The 
Italian general staff appeared to learn virtually nothing from the experience on the Western Front. Although they did have observers there, and although there were reports written about the deadlock on the Western Front, quite remarkably and tragically, the Italian general staff did not draw any strategic conclusions uh, from that deadlock. And they appeared to believe that the conditions on the Western Front were so different from the conditions which, which they faced, and that the Germans on the Western Front were so vastly superior an enemy to the Austrians on the Italian Front, that they would indeed roll over them, and they would be in Vienna for Christmas. That was a boast made by the deputy commander-in-chief on the Italian front. But as you say, they very rapidly found themselves deadlocked. I mean, very rapidly indeed, because they were having to attack, as I mentioned already, up steep hillsides against well-entrenched and battle-hardened enemy. And so the pattern you get is of repeated assaults and rebuffs, so that as you go through the book, there's a battle of Isonza, and there's a first battle, and then there's a second battle. And every few months is a renewed assault until you get up to a 12th battle, and they're still fighting in the same piece of land for, for control of it. And it just, it's, it's, you know, it's attrition to, to the power of 12. That's right. The Italians decided to mimic the Austrians in referring to these serial battles by number. This was a big mistake because this simply served to draw attention to the fact that, as you say, after two and a half years, they were still trying to claw their way up the same hillsides that they had been attacking for two and a half years. And the demoralisation of the Italian troops, who fought valiantly by the autumn of 1917, when, when, when the 12th battle, the famous Battle of Caporetto, began, was considerable. However, the Italian commanders were not interested in trying to improve their soldiers' morale by the sort of means which were already being employed on the Western Front. While they complained incessantly about the insidious effects of pacifist socialist propaganda on the Italian soldiers' morale, they did not try to counter that by boosting the soldiers' morale, for example, in, in obvious kinds of ways, by providing entertainment for them in the rear, or by making sure that turns of leave were punctually provided, or by clarifying to the soldiers the nature and purposes of the war in terms which they could understand. These elementary things were not done, and as a result, when there was a very effective Austro-German attack in October 1917, the Italian Second Army, which was the, the principal Italian force on, on, on the front, rapidly collapsed. You mentioned the absence of those positive things that the, the commanders could have done to motivate the troops. Worse than that, perhaps, were the negative things they did, the very severity of the punishment. And I was struck by that because I knew there were, you know, there were, there were court-martials and there were summary executions on the Western Front. But the degree to which those things were taken in the Italian Front was, was remarkable. Yes, indeed. The Italian disciplinary regime was incomparably more savage than those obtaining on the Western Front or, indeed, in the Dardanelles. 
the Italians executed proportionally far more of their own soldiers than the other armies. And there's plenty of evidence from soldiers' letters and diaries that this had a terrible effect on the men's morale, as it was bound to do, and as one supposes anyone except the Italian commanders would see as an inevitable consequence. Something which comes out of the book very strongly is that Italy was not a nation-state in the same sense that the, the United Kingdom or even France was. I was struck by the fact that many of the soldiers spoke dialects which were mutually incomprehensible and they had to have sort of translators between them in order to communicate in some kind of lingua franca. And that seems to sort of feed in to bigger questions about the, the purpose of the war for the Italians because there were views expressed that it was a sort of sort of forging of the nation and by the time the discipline was becoming very harsh there were presumably worries about the nation actually fracturing under the pressure of conducting this very unpopular war. I wonder if you can say a little bit about, about how the war played into that sort of forming of Italian national consciousness. I'm not sure I can put it better than you just have. Before the war was fought, there was a certain kind of Italian intellectual and political leader who was worried that Italians had still not been formed, to quote a, a, a famous phrase from a risorgimento leader in back when the Kingdom of Italy was proclaimed, we have now made Italy, but we now have to make Italians. Now, there were doubts around 1900, 1910, that despite its achievements in modernization, which were considerable, the Italian state had still not succeeded in forming Italians. And for some intellectuals, war, which was already desirable against Austria in order to extend Italian territory into those areas around the north, east, where there were substantial Italian, ethnic Italian communities under Austrian rule. So war, which was already desirable for expansionist reasons was additionally desirable because in the furnace of war a new Italian national consciousness could be forged. And however strange that idea sounds to our ears, it was a deeply held conviction in parts of the Italian elite. And it did help to build up this extraordinary pressure for war which was mobilised by the interventionist campaign around the very end of 1914 and 1915, which in the end prevailed and brought the country to side with the Allies in April 1915. I wondered if you could say something about the way in which, after the war, the myth of the war was created and how that fed into the, the wider myths of Italianness that the fascists were able to, to mobilise so successfully. The Italian fascists saw the First World War as a colossal bloodletting in which the Italian nation had rediscovered its true purposes, in which it had performed triumphantly in the end at enormous cost and had recreated itself and burned off the liberal democratic dross which had prevented it before the war from achieving greatness. It was that kind of myth. And accordingly, the uh, Italian fascists used, with some flair and some success, visual commemoration uh, in the form of war memorials and colossal cemeteries to 
enshrine this myth in stone, using, for the most part, the same stone which had formed the terrain on which the battles had been fought. The, the largest military cemetery in Italy is very near Trieste. It's very near the airport of Trieste, and if you fly in with Ryanair to Trieste Airport, you will see this enormous um, white stone monument extending all the way up, up a hillside, leading from the, the lowlands up to the Carso Plateau. And it is uh, the wow factor is still very impressive with, with this cemetery. And there are others, there are perhaps half a dozen of these very, very large ossuaries where the bones of the fallen soldiers are collected. It's striking, I think, that this language of fascist commemoration has not at all been superseded in Italy. And in fact, if today you, would, you want to get a sense as to the fascist vision of Italian identity, you can't do better than to look at, at these cemeteries, which, except for the quarter of Rome, which was designed by the fascists, Eur, is, I think, the most striking surviving example of fascist aesthetics and indeed an entire vision of the nation still ready to uh, to sort of rise from the dead and to defend the uh, fascist achievements. I was talking to Mark Thompson, whose book on the Italian front is called The White War and is out now. You can hear extended versions of all the interviews in these podcasts by visiting the Faber website. You'll also find author readings and many other audio features there as well. Subscribing to this podcast is free and easy. Simply go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page. Next month, I hope to bring you an interview with Paul Oster talking about his latest novel. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.